Gail, I'm happy we could get together here this morning. It occurs to me every time a kid goes up the steps into a church, they're seeing that church almost magically, so much different than me. You know, the, the, the ornamentation, the pews, the aisle, the, the windows, the lighting, everything is just magical for a child. And for me, it's no longer magical. Well, that's too bad. It is. <laughs> and I think you help reinstate that magic. Tell us a little bit about your work. Well, I agree with you. I'm still the kid. Because um, I remember walking into that space, that church space, even if it didn't have stained glass windows and even if it didn't have the fancy, what we think of in traditional terms of a decorated church. It's like, wow, this is a cool space. What's going on in here? And cool things were going on in there. But what I do is I try to help a congregation understand the cool things that are going on in their church. I mean, what is actually happening when we get together for worship? And the fact is that the building itself has an effect on our worship. It has um, a part to play in our worship, and it can sometimes make the worship more beautiful and enhance the worship. Sometimes it can be a distraction to what's actually happening in front of us. Sometimes it um, hinders what we want to do. It just it, It's a negative effect. So my role as a liturgical design consultant is to help the congregations help people realize that the building does have a role and to how how to help that building enhance their role its role in their worship i guess that's how i would say it i remember very clearly about uh, five years ago i had an opportunity to take four young men from israel mm -hmm. into um, a catholic cathedral and there happened to be um, a liturg uh, a mass going on. So when we left, of course, there were a lot of questions about the liturgy. Well, it just, yeah, see, we, well, people who are um, born into a church or born into some kind of faith tradition where there is a, a building, a temple, a, a mosque, a church, um, we over time get used to it and take for granted what we see whereas someone coming in completely out of context like those men you were talking about from israel they're looking at it with completely fresh eyes and asking questions like why is the altar so far away from the people a lot of catholics don't even think about the fact that that altar is or christians in general why is the altar so far away from the people that's a really good question. And we don't think about it. Um, we, like I say, we tend to um, take it for granted. We just sort of, it, it's a given, that's the way it is. And of course it can never change. Well, it can change. And if there's a reason to change it, it needs to change. If people understand that there's maybe a better way to do it, then yeah, it needs to change. And so again, I, I like, to talk to people about their worship and their space and let them ponder those things. You, you know, pretend you're a Martian and walk into your church for the first time. What do you see? And when people can get into that mindset of looking at it with new eyes, it's amazing what they say, what they discover. Or if it's brought up to them for the 
um, like it's said out loud. I was working with a church that had um, a whole lot of steps going up to the church. And I said, well, okay, this is great, but what about somebody in a wheelchair? Oh, well, we don't have anybody in wheelchairs. And then somebody says, well, wait a minute, my aunt. Well, wait a minute, my grandfather. You know, it's it's a given. That's the way it's going to be. But that's not how it ought to be because those people are going to be excluded. And, well, we don't have those people. Well, yes, you do. You know, so they see it with new eyes. And that's that's my joy. And you're bringing a view of the practical, for example, the steps. But then I think you've got a special view of the aesthetics and the liturgy that is the central activity. Right. It's not just a matter of, well, you've got steps and there's, you know, it, it's inaccessible, so you have to fix that. It's more, what are we doing in here? We're trying to um, be the body of Christ in this building. We're trying to form a community in this building. And when you do that, you have to remember who is there and who is not there. So it's a theological question. It's not an ADA requirement that you put in a ramp. The, 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 the reason for considering some other way for people in a wheelchair, say, to get into a building as just a tiny example is because we're a community that wants to include everyone. We want to be hospitable to everyone. We want everyone to be able to be with us. And so if we're excluding people, that's against who we are as Christian people. Therefore, something needs to be done. You know, it's a different motivation. It's coming from a whole different place. And that's where I want people to come from, is why are we, we're not making a change because I like the color of the carpet. It's, it has something to do with how our liturgy will fill everyone and be more complete and be more holy for all those gathered. Now, what the Catholic Church is the big event quite a few years ago was Vatican II. So the churches and even the liturgy pre-Vatican II were remarkably changed. So my question is, when you're in the pre-Vatican II church, mm-hmm. what? which is most of them. Yeah, yeah. So it just seems to me that the gulf is so wide. So my, my basic question is, what were the driving ideas that built all these brick churches that we see through the rural and the city landscape? Well, if you're talking about Catholic churches or even other Christian denominations, um, because they all started as Catholic and with the Reformation, of course, most of the new Protestant denominations started in Catholic churches before they started building their own, but they were used as a model. They met the theology and the um, the ecclesiology of the day. This is how church was supposed to be. This is what worship was about. And it was about processions. It was about the priest and all of his ministers um, praying on behalf of the people in a language that they used to understand, but then became a language that only the educated understood and no one else did. So in an unknown language, leading us in prayer, doing the prayer basically for us is how it developed. And so the building, long, narrow aisles, and the priest far, far away facing not the people, but facing God on behalf of us, like leading us forward kind of thing, um, that all made sense. And the people not wanting to go 
the idea of the temple and the Holy of Holies that only certain people could go further than like where the communion rail was. Now we're talking we're talking ancient theology here. This is not a theology that is happening these days in many most places. This is old theology. You know, you could only go so far, so they had a communion rail and you couldn't, you know, it was too sacred to touch the host, so it had to be on your tongue. And so there was a communion rail. I mean, all those things fit very well with Vatican II, which again is what, 50, 60 years old now? When people began to look at the, our theology of church and look at how worship should happen. And so there was a whole lot, it didn't just bang, 1963, somebody got this great idea. I mean, it had been going on for decades and before the bishops said, let's talk about that. And so now the conversation becomes the people of God are as much a part of the church as the priest and the ministers. And so what are the implications for that in the way the space is supposed to look? You know, it was great for pre-Vatican II, it worked very well, but our new understanding of where God is present in that building, in that community, has implications for the space. And so newer churches have very different looking designs, which somehow, sometimes still have to be interpreted to Christians because we never caught on the theology, on the, the worship. Well, certainly the Vatican documents reoriented the altar with the priest facing the community. Exactly. Yeah. I suppose also that there's a roster of other changes, but as far as the church building goes, that church mm -hmm. that was built in the 1870s, mm -hmm. probably the only thing that the Vatican documents did was literally just limited to the orientation of the altar and maybe removal of the uh, communion rail. Well, that's how it started. But as we look at contemporary worship, and the the good example would be the Easter Vigil or the, the Triduum, the way that the Catholic Church celebrates Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and the Easter Vigil on Saturday night. All of those rituals and all the things that happened there, um, because that wasn't celebrated pre-Vatican II. It, we didn't have that Triduum experience. And so processions are important, but also understanding ourselves as a gathered community. Now, this year with the coronavirus has been an extremely complicated triduum. I mean, uh, Christians could not gather for church. And at this, to date, still cannot gather for church. So there was no triduum. There was no worship in buildings. But at the time, or you know, last year, and who knows what's going to happen after this but people needed the ability to move around in that space and to be more accessible to the altar so yes bringing the altar closer but if you bring the altar closer that has implications for what about the seating do we need the seating to be so stiff that people can't turn to each other for the sign of peace that people can't feel more free so it means it has implications for the seating where do we sit people and does it have to be permanent can it be movable is there a way to change that around? And again, in post-coronavirus, when we gather again, those, those pews are going to be really um, burdens. They're going to block us in our ability to be together. Whether it means, you know, taking pews out and putting in chairs, I don't know yet. I don't know what's going to happen next. But having a baptismal font present for our baptism, which is now a public experience within Mass, meant where is the font going to be? And do we need those little tiny holy water stoops at the, at the front door of the church 
maybe we want to put the whole font there instead of hide it in a corner in a closet. So it has implications for lots of different components of the building. I, I don't know if I'm if you understand what I mean. Yes, in fact, um, I'm thinking of um, different categories of events. I think of the mass. I'm now thinking the baptism. Uh, there's the uh, sacrament of the wedding. Mm-hmm. There's the funeral rite. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to me all of these might require a different dimension of the physical structure. Correct. I mean, um, there are some churches that have difficulty wheeling in a casket because the pews are so narrow, the aisles are so narrow that they can't hardly make a turn. And it's so it becomes very awkward within that church to do that. Um, there was a woman I talked to, we had talked about baptism, and she said, I didn't realize that baptism was not something that when there was a baptism, you went into the back sacristy and pulled out the 24-inch in diameter um, stainless steel bowl sitting in a framework that you just brought it out in the center, did the baptism, and then moved it aside again. You know, the fact that this is our primary, theologically, this is our way of entering the church. This is the way we become Christian. And so she just thought that's how you did it. You just take it out, did the sacrament, and, and, and then put it away again. But if it is so key and so primary, and so primary meaning the first thing we have to experience to be in this church in the first place, why are we hiding it in a corner? It should be prominent. It should be present. It should be around us you know, visible, audible. Oh, new idea to her. Okay, well, that means they have to find a place, which they don't have, in their space for a font and maybe something bigger. Okay, I'm going to put you on the center stage. Mm -hmm. Pretend I've never been in a Christian church and you're taking me into the altar space. Okay. What are the things that you're going to point out to me that I would otherwise be blind to? Uh, well, it depends on the space we're walking into. I mean, it depends on, because there's lots of different kinds of churches you can see now. So my questions would be, this is, what does it look like to you? I'm asking you, Patrick. In this, what is it? In this case, I'm going to go to a stereotypical late 1800s. Okay. Fairly small um, worship area. And mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm going to see um, different books, a uh, candle or two that look like they're dedicated for a purpose, mm-hmm. a, a cabinet with oils. You know, I'm just going to see these things and statues. Okay. So, you know, help me if, with that. Okay, so so you first of all, you see in this area, you see, um, well, what's the main thing you see? What's you, you just, you play with me here. What's the main thing you see? I think the, the central, uh, the altar. Okay, but you would would you call it an altar? Is that what it is, or, I, or is it like a table, or is it like a in this, mausoleum? In, no, in this case, I would call it an altar. Okay, okay. Altars are um, basically places of sacrifice. That's what an altar is supposed to be, and theologically, that is where the sacrifice of the Eucharist happens in a Catholic church. And so, prayers are spoken at that place. Bread and wine, you see the bread and the wine, those are prayed over and blessed and consecrated in the Catholic Church, blessed and distributed to the congregation. 
And so that's the, and, and prayers are spoken from that altar. So you've got a book there. You might have candles nearby, which add reverence to that space. You can see that that kind of, it's highlighting it. There might be plants, there might be candlesticks, floor standing sticks, and, and it maybe has a cloth on it. it. It should be a beautiful table because it's, and it's often central, in some way central. So that should tell you, even if you don't know anything about it, that this is an important thing. And all those other things are adding to its importance. Does that make sense? Yes, I understand now the okay. presence of the candles and uh, the wonderful linen on the altar. I still okay. have a, I still have a couple questions. There's two candles that mm -hmm. seem uniquely positioned. Okay. What are these? Um, well, is you have to describe them better for me. What I do see, you see? I, I see a red candle hanging from a wall, and then okay. off off to the side, I see this tall candles with pins in it. Okay, so you see a small, relatively small, is it like a candle in a glass, red glass bowl? Yes, or is it, it a is. red candle? No, okay. it's, in a, it's in a bowl. or a, Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and it's maybe hanging from the ceiling or affixed to the wall. And so clearly it means something because it's there and you noticed it. Nearby is going to be the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is a place where those though the bread that was blessed and consecrated at the altar and distributed to the community, sometimes there's extra left over. And it's not because in a Catholic tradition that is consecrated bread that is in actuality the body of Christ. That's what Christian Catholics believe. And so you don't just throw it away or put it in a refrigerator or put it in another bag or something. You reserve it and it's reserved in a special container called a tabernacle so nearby where that candle is is going to be a special usually it's sort of a box shape sometimes it has gold doors on it um, that would be the tabernacle and so that is where it's reserved and the light the presence lamp tells you that there is in fact uh, the reserved body of christ in the tabernacle so that's an indicator of where the tabernacle is generally the other candle that you see is a very big candle, the biggest candle in the room, if you notice, and that's that's the Easter candle. That's the candle that is lit at the Triduum at the Easter season, the Easter vigil, and that is a candle that represents the light of Christ, which has come into the world from the darkness because Jesus rose from the dead. So that candle is used at baptisms and other sacraments. In the Easter season, it's set near what looks like a pulpit or an ambo, we call it an ambo, where the readings are proclaimed and the gospel is proclaimed, and that's where that candle sits for some of the time. Otherwise, it sits next to the baptismal font. So those are things you're seeing, right? And right. if I'm And if I'm talking to somebody, I mean, I've taken groups of high school kids into their own churches, and we have this conversation just like this. Um, and look at all those statues. Who are all those people? Why are they all up there, and why do they look so old and unhappy? Um, and <laughs> because Catholic churches, they're full of statues. Some of them have lots of statues in them. And because the Catholic church and others too believe that there are some people in our Catholic history, in our Christian history, that were so amazingly powerful in their belief and in their actions as Christians that they were declared saints.
and we venerate them, we honor them. And many times our churches are named after saints, St. Joseph, St. Mary, St. Agatha, St. You name it. There's right. lots of saints out there. Right. And so that saint is often in the church. Mary, the mother of God, is also in a church. Sometimes there are lots of others because different individuals or different communities have a devotion, a special devotion to that particular saint. So, for example, um, if you're in a church that has a Mexican community in it, they have a special devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe. So you'll see the image of Guadalupe somewhere in that church often as a devotional space. And it's not, again, it's not like they're praying to that person to as a god. They're not um, adoring the saints. I think of it more, we call it the communion of saints, that they are around us and they are helpers to us. For someone who's not a, a, a believing Catholic, I explain it like this. If your grandfather, you knew your grandfather when you were a little kid and he used to bounce on his knee and you used to go to the park together and as you got older, he'd give you ideas about school or whatever and eventually your grandfather dies, okay? And you, you know, you bury him and, but you still wanna remember him. So maybe you have a special memento of his. Maybe you have photographs of his. Maybe you remember him a lot, maybe you say, Grandpa, I'm in a really tough spot right now. What would you do? You know, help me out here. That's what the community of saints are about. That's what we're doing. We're, we're remembering and recalling and knowing these were holy people, these were good people, and they are part of our lives still. Very good. I'd like to transition now to the work you do, how, mm -hmm. you, get, how you get involved with the pastor or the committee what that whole process is? Well, it it, um, it it can be anything from somebody calls me on the phone and says, hey, we're working on a renovation, you wanna help? Or I might do a presentation and someone sees me and we talk some more, but somehow I will have a conversation, often it's with the pastor, to find out that, oh, we're, we're looking at doing some renovation, we're looking at doing something very small, but I wanna make sure that we don't do something that is gonna mess things up later. And I say, that's a very wise move because my job is not, I'm not an architect, so I don't build buildings. My job is to help, again, help the congregation by education, by formation, helping them learn about their worship. And whether it's a Methodist church or a, an Episcopal church or a Catholic church, I. I have not worked in any other churches except Christian churches. I want them to know what their worship is like, what they need in their worship, both, uh, you know, for example, what will make your worship better and how can the space help that? And how is your space currently hurting that? So again, as an example, if I'm working with a congregation, the pastor tells me we sing all the time, but we need to replace the carpet because it's getting worn. And singing is really important in our church, okay? So what I might be doing with the congregation or with the committee, the group of people who's interested in learning and then making some decisions about what should be done in the future, um, we'll talk about music and we'll talk about the acoustics in a building. And worship involves singing. And if a church sings a lot, worship involves a lot of singing. And acoustics, to make the singing sound even better, is is very important. Well, did you know that when you put carpeting on the floor, 
it's absorbing a whole lot of your sound. And so if you have a carpeted space, it might be more absorbing the sound instead of letting the sound resound in the building. So that, in other words, if you take your carpet away, it might make you sound like a better singing congregation. So rather than replacing the carpet, maybe you want to replace the flooring. So my, again, my job is to give people ideas and let them think about it. And, oh, I never thought about that before. Oh, we need to talk about that. Hmm, maybe we don't need carpet. Maybe we should get something else. Oh, but then people will help people's, we'll hear people's pitter-patter of feet and the clickety-clack of their heels. And we don't want that either. Well, no, you don't want that either. But I wonder if we talk to an architect, what kind of materials there are available that you wouldn't hear the clickety-clack, but it would also not be carpet. Or maybe there would be carpet in a couple of places, not the entire space. Or maybe this, or maybe, you know, so it's engaging the conversation, but it's not because we need new carpeting. It's because we want our music to sound good. It's because we want our praise to be glorious. Yeah, it sounds like your work is maybe primarily that of an educator. I think so. And, and again, someone who um, helps the congregation look at their space with brand new eyes, like we were just a minute ago, and think about, well, what does it really need? Inevitably, I will go through a series of educational components. You know, So we'll talk about worship, we'll talk about gathering, we'll talk about baptism, lots of different topics. And maybe halfway through, somebody will come up to me and say, you know, I was in this church last week. You know, I was in this, we had this wedding for my sister yesterday, yesterday way across. And, and, and then they start critiquing other church spaces which is exactly what I want people to be able to do. Very so, interesting. You know, yeah, yeah, because so, at, at this point, you've put new um, glasses on them. They're, they're now seeing something they could not possibly have observed without your conversation. Or, or maybe didn't know it was there or, or saw it but didn't know how to put words on it. And so, like I say, I'm not the architect. I want to talk to a congregation before they talk to an architect because... If you've ever worked with an architect or, I mean, architects are great. That's exactly what they do. But they are not liturgists, and that's not their job. And so when they say to a, a group, you know, oh, you want to redo your church? Okay, what do you want to do? You want to put carpeting in? Okay. You want to, um, you know, put the pews in just like they were for? Okay. I mean, the, the architect will do what the customer, what the client wants. My job is to turn you into a really good knowledgeable client so that when you do talk to the architect you know what you need and why you need it and the architect may say here's an example um one of the churches i was working with wanted to make the building accessible it was sort of an odd split level kind of a building where the church was on one level and the parish hall was half a flight up and the parish basement was a half a flight down it was odd but they needed some way to make this work and so they wanted an elevator we went through the whole process we got to the contractors and they said you know the contractor said this is gonna be really expensive to put this uh, this elevator in right now what we can do is we can put in the the empty space and build a building and you'll save a pile of money and then you put in the elevator when you need it i mean you know when you can afford it and the people said no that's a priority for us. We want to be inclusive. We want to make people feel welcome. So we're not going to cut that from the budget. We'll cut something else from the budget. So they know what they want. They know what they need and why it's important. 
your work is, as I understand it, primarily within the church. However, on the outside of the church building, are you involved in any of that work? Could be. Um, it, again, it kind of depends on the situation. If all they want to do is something internal, well, no, it wouldn't be. But if they're renovating or building new, then, again, a church I was working with, had they've got a whole lot of open space, and they're talking about doing um, like a meditation garden. Okay, that was their idea. That's great. Well, what's going to be in the meditation garden? You know, do we want to put, um, like, Stations of the Cross? Do we want to put a patron statue of their patron saint? Do we want to have seating areas? You know, so I might help in the design and let's consider all the possibilities. Do they want to put a columbarium in? I don't know. I don't know if they could, but, um, you know, what are the options? And that's, that's where I try to help people as well, because sometimes people are limited by what they've ever seen before. And just because of my work, I've seen a whole lot more things. And I know that there's other things that might be possible that they had not considered. And... So I could be involved with the outside. You know, how, how is it going to look? How is it going to present itself to the community? There was a church that wanted to, on their front door, you know, the entrance to the church, the actual doorway, they wanted to put mirrored glass so that as you were walking in, the idea was you are the church, so you can see yourself as you walk in the door. Okay, got that? I said... What I see, what that reads to me, when I walk into a building that's got a glass front on it, that says to me, I don't want you to see what's inside. Are you sure that's what you want to communicate? I don't, you know, I don't want you to see in here. It's we're we're keeping it a secret because we've mirrored it off. So they had to consider which which way are they thinking about it. One of my experiences in the mid seventies was. We, my wife and I had just moved to a, uh, a town in the Chicago area, and we knew what time the Mass was, and we knew where the church was by address. Mm -hmm. So we're driving just a few blocks to where the church is supposed to be, and we're driving round and round the block, mm -hmm. and we're disappointed because we could only find this large cathedral-like church without stained glass windows, so we knew we had not yet found the Catholic Church. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> and, and then later, we were active in the uh, parish. Mm -hmm. We found out a couple things, and that is when the church was built back in the 1930s, I think, it was built in an area where Catholics weren't common. So in the mm -hmm. front yard of the pastor, often... Uh, crosses were burned. Mm. So he's now got these decisions to make. How am I going to build this church? So he's building it with, without stained glass. Mm -hmm. And he builds in the basement a very, very large community swimming pool. Oh my gosh, okay. Yeah, so the reason I re reflect on these memories, it's, uh, again, somebody who was some pastor who was being strategic and, I think, appropriate with church design. Of course, of course. Now, I would, I don't know exactly, but I would bet money that the first 1,000 years of church architecture 
had no stained glass. Okay? Partly because it wasn't feasible. Mm -hmm. But stained glass does not define a Catholic church. <laughs> and people think, oh, it's not a Catholic church if it doesn't have stained glass, doesn't have kneelers, doesn't have a crucifix instead of a cross. These are not any of those, none of those are true. Um, but we tend to put certain categories, it has to look this way. Well, no. I mean, the only reason those, those 1870s brick churches that you're thinking of that are in a lot of rural communities is because the German and the Irish immigrants came over and built what they remembered, which were buildings that you'll see in France and Italy and Germany and Belgium, uh, but it, it, they're not quote-unquote American churches. They just picked up this architectural style. And, you know, we don't have an American style of church. We have a lot of interesting styles. And some of the churches that I have seen, but again, this is exciting to me. Other people think I'm crazy. I have a completely different look to them. There's a church that I know that was originally a gymnasium, you know, how a parish is going to, let's see, we'll build a school first and then we'll build a church. And so they built a gymnasium to be the worship space until they could build their church. And then years, years, years pass. And now it's, well, you know, the way the building is right now is actually works really well. So they had to decide, do I build a, do we build another gym and use this as our worship space or do we build a church and convert this back to the gym? Well, guess what? They kept the gym as the worship space because it was wide open, because it was flexible, because they could see each other in the space. It's like it works. Why go back to something that is actually pre-Vatican II in design, the traditional church? There's, I mean, they're fine. There's lots of them around, and they're okay. But the, internally, I, th I think if we look at what we do in our worship today, they need modification. Some of them have been, some of them have not. And it takes... It's only going to take the congregation understanding before anything is going to get done. Because the pastor may think it's a great idea to do all this renovation. I may think it's a great idea to do all these different things. But we're leaving. You know, we're not staying there. It's the community that stays. So they have to be the ones who own it and who can sell it to each other. You know, they believe it. They're going to do it. It also occurs to me that the church community of this year has an obligation to create worship space that individuals 10, 15, 20 years from now are going to appreciate. Mm -hmm. I think it's very difficult to expect young people in their 20s to have interest in going into churches that were clearly designed 100, 120 years ago with really no attention to detail to support their own worship needs. Well, and it comes back to worship. You know, what are worship needs? I, I tend to think it's it's the building is not the only thing. You know, people come into the building a lot of times because it's a beautiful space. No doubt, those are these are beautiful spaces. We accommodate our worship to fit the building, so that the building still has sway. Again, there's a ritual on Good Friday in Catholic churches where you venerate the cross. And again, this didn't happen this year. I don't know how it's going to happen. But people will come forward and venerate a large cross by either kneeling or touching it or kissing it or some tactile thing with this cross. And I was in a church 
traditional church where people go up the aisle, you know, you, you go and you reverence and you come back, you go and you reverence and come back. Um, I was in another church that had a more open space, not as restrictive as that traditional space is. And they just came from all different corners and they just clustered around it, just gathered all 360 degrees all the way around this cross. And they'd come in, they'd kiss it, or they'd kneel, or they'd touch it, or they'd pray, and then they left. And then, and it was just a pile of people. And it was so much more powerful because they had the extra space, the availability to really pray instead of kind of go up, genuflect and leave, go up, genuflect and leave, which is just very mechanical. And this became very powerful. So I don't know. Does that, I don't, I, I forgot your question. <laughs> well, actually, my next question is, and this is, um, kind of imagining a problem. But I can imagine some individual who actually is uh, wanting to go to the Catholic Church mm-hmm. just to kind of see what it's all about. Mm-hmm. And they've never been in a, a church that looks like, and let's say this person's going to the cathedral. So okay. this, so they've never, this person's never, have never, never been to Europe, never been in a museum of this kind. The whole approach, mm-hmm. 20 steps, two flights, big, huge doors, tall, stately steeples, everything about it is extremely nerve-wracking for this person. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it seems to me we're requiring so much for this individual who actually has an interest in finding out more about the Catholic Church we're actually expecting this person to swing open these heavy doors and mm-hmm. enter to this place that's designed in a way this person's never never seen a church designed before. Okay, so it's too intimidating. Yeah, and, and I honestly think this intimidation is, is a problem. And I don't know how we would ever get around it. But for somebody who's just coming in, curious, and they happen to be coming into a cathedral, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's hard to imagine where this would be easier place for that person. Mm-hmm. Well, and, 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 there's the, and then you contrast it with the, um, like the storefront churches, or better yet, with the large, large um, community churches that are, being, that are springing up all over the, the country, for sure, um, where it's auditorium-sized, and there's a lot of music and preaching um not sacramental they're they're christian churches but they're not sacramental churches necessarily and those are drawing people like crazy and you you wonder okay well what's the difference well i would say maybe the building but i think it has more to do with the community to be honest um you know what is the community doing to welcome that shy intimidating intimidated person who is really nervous about coming in are they being invited are they being mentored? Are they being, are, is their hand being held? Just let me show you around. Let me pick you up and bring you. You know, I don't think that a lot of Catholic churches do that. And yeah, so, I think it's an interesting area to explore. But uh, again, I don't know what the remedy would be if this person is going to a cathedral. Mm-hmm. Because that is such an extreme example of, of something that you don't find in the United States, yeah. except well, for the big cities where there are cathedrals. Right. I mean, I think that 
I really think that um, the answer is if the person is brave enough to open the door, there better be somebody on the other side saying, welcome, we're glad you're here. Come on in, let me show you around. I mean, that's, that's what has to happen. Or something that they know, to, I mean, yeah, I, that's my firm belief is there has to be somebody on the other side. And I also want the building to feel welcoming to them. So sometimes, here's another, an, okay, one more example. Um, um, it was a more contemporary looking church, but the church of St. Stephen's. And St. Stephen is known as the first Christian martyr, but he was also a deacon. And so when the community decided they wanted to have a patron statue commissioned of Stephen, there was a conversation about how and where and what, you know, what about it. And rather than inside the church, an image of Jesus, of a Stephen being stoned to death, the martyr, they decided to have Stephen be standing outside the church door, arms outstretched with a big smile on his face, Stephen the deacon, who served meals, who was welcoming. And so the front door of that church has this statue of, hi, everybody, come on in. Okay, <laughs> makes a difference. That would make a difference, I think. So it's not just the building. The building helps. It's got to be what's going on inside that congregation. And if the congregation is growing and doing new things and reaching out to its community and working in mission and, and you know, a presence in the in the larger community, number one, that's going to be noticed by everyone, the townspeople. But number two, they're going to be probably more open to, let's look at our space and see how it can help us even better. My last question is regarding the chief executive officer, the priest of the parish. Are they trained in any way in the seminary or post-seminary in these issues of church design that we're now talking about? I doubt it. Some of them have been involved with, a lot of them have been involved with renovations, but they sort of learn as they go, more attuned to how church architecture can work. Um, some will say, we just want to repeat what we've got or, or build something from the past. I just don't find that as a good solution for the future. And I'm really curious about how we're going to proceed into the future you know, how our worship is going to look, um, how Catholics and Christians all over the world are going to be managing and working on the future of uh, the Christian community. I mean, people are out there doing the work right now, but as far as how are we gathering and how are we going to pray together, that's that's an unknown right now, I think. Yeah, I'm a real marketing person, and everything we've been talking about goes to the issue of effective marketing but that's essentially what we're talking about we're trying to market to the community an access to worship we're trying to market to the community that aren't members of the parish an invitation to come and be part of the parish yeah that would be a, a secular way of describing evangelization i think yeah precisely anyway as we close up shop, is there one or two topics that you just think is terribly important to say is one, I guess one concept that I didn't talk about that would be important is that there's two basic thoughts, schools of thought, if you will, about worship spaces. One is that the idea of the building is a temple 
It's the, it's the home of God. God resides in this space. And therefore, the way it is designed and the way you understand it is with that in mind. So if God lives here, yes, it's going to be the finest materials. It's going to be the most beautiful. It's going to be aimed at that holy of holies. It's where God resides and you treat it appropriately and you walk into it in that appropriate way. The other school of thought, if you will, is that the church is a house, not a house for God, but a house for the people of God, the church. So that the building houses the church, meaning the people of God. And the building is the house for the people of God. That's a whole different architectural scheme. That's a whole different way of thinking about, well, what's the most important thing inside this skin? It's those people. It's the group gathered. It's the assembly and its leaders gathered together. And so the, the interior of the, of the space is going to look and feel differently than if it is a temple, a house for God. And the church has gone back and forth in, in the last 2000 years plus where architecture is like a temple and architecture is like a house. I mean, you can, you can go back and forth through the centuries and see examples of this. And each congregation has to kind of figure out what its balance is going to be. Is it going to be Chartres Cathedral, the temple of God? Or is it going to be something like um, a monastery where it's very simple and plain and the people, the monks, are the people of God? What kind of a space are you thinking about and that's that has a lot to do with it you know people's starting point and to know that there's an, another starting point means we have to do some balancing okay well uh it was very delightful and i uh, wish you well Good. All right. sure you too take care <laughs> okay bye-bye <laughs> bye-bye